You have found the podcast for open-minded individuals to hear the issues. And the right-wingers can't stand it. Welcome to Lefties, the podcast of Progressive Talk, a service of News Source 1 Michiana. It's time for Nicole Sandler's What's News from NicoleSandler.com and the Progressive Voices Network. Breaking news alert Thursday night from the New York Times reporting that prosecutors from Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg's office have signaled that charges against the former president are likely. They issued an invitation to Donald Trump to appear next week before the grand jury. Now, the invitation to the target of an investigation is generally a signal that the investigation is winding down. Bragg's office convened this grand jury to evaluate business-related matters, including Trump's role in hush money payments to adult film actress Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential campaign that were classified as a legal expense. This according to people with knowledge of the investigation. The former guy, of course, sounded off on his so-called truth social platform Thursday night, declaring, among other things, I did absolutely nothing wrong. I never had an affair with Stormy Daniels, nor would I have wanted to have an affair with Stormy Daniels. Well, I'll agree that affair is the wrong word to describe the one-night stand that Miss Daniels has testified she participated in, as unsatisfying as it may have been. Stay tuned. The story will likely move quickly. Well, the February jobs numbers are in, and once again, for the second month in a row, it was a stronger than expected showing for the labor market. This time, U.S. employers adding 311,000 jobs. The unemployment rate did tick up just a tad to 3.6 percent. But as we live in opposite world, the good economic numbers will likely trigger another larger than hoped for hike in interest rates. I guess that's the you're damned if you do, damned if you don't principle at work. As Senator Elizabeth Warren protested in a Senate Banking Committee hearing this week with Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Right now, the unemployment rate is 3.4%, which is the lowest in 54 years. And we actually don't think that we need to see a sharp or enormous increase in unemployment to get inflation under control. I'm looking at your projections. Do you call laying off 2 million people this year not a sharp increase in unemployment? Explain that to the 2 million families who are going to be out of work. We need a Fed that will fight for families. And if you're not going to lead that charge, we need someone at the Fed who will. President Joe Biden released his annual budget on Thursday, outlining his policy priorities for the coming year. Biden's 2024 budget mostly rehashed the president's earlier proposals, expanding the Social Security safety net and to pay for it by raising taxes on the wealthiest Americans and corporations who haven't been paying their fair share. Biden wants to restore the expanded child tax credit and make permanent the enhanced Obamacare subsidies. And he wants to provide universal free preschool, make college more affordable, and establish a national paid family and medical leave program. You know, standard socialism. Unfortunately, the president's proposed budget has no chance of making it through the Republican-controlled House, but it could still frame upcoming political battles on Capitol Hill, where the Republicans have yet to unveil their own spending plan. A federal appeals court on Thursday upheld a new Florida law that raised the minimum age to purchase a gun from 18 to 21. The law was passed after 17 people were killed in a shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School by a 19-year-old in 2018. 
But this 3-0 ruling from the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals comes as age-based restrictions are shaping up to be a flashpoint in the legal battles over gun access since the Supreme Court last year laid out a new test for determining a gun restriction's constitutionality. But this ruling may also be short-lived because here in Florida, Republican lawmakers introduced a bill this week that would lower the minimum age required to buy a gun in the state from 21 back to 18. Of course they did. Oh, and at the same time, moved forward on DeSantis's priority, allowing permitless concealed carry of firearms in Florida. No registration or licensing necessary. What could possibly go wrong? And in related news, yeah, it is. The Washington Post reporting Thursday night that people close to the fascist Florida man say that DeSantis has described his presidential plans with no caveats, that he is planning to run for the Republican nomination for the presidency in this election cycle. And then there was this news that former Virginia Attorney General and Trump administration official Ken Cuccinelli has started a new super PAC called Never Back Down, and it's aimed at boosting DeSantis for president in 2024. Oh, please. Oh, and by the way, DeSantis headed to Iowa today. Trump will be there on Monday. And off they go. Seven people were killed during a mass shooting on Thursday. This time not in the U.S., but at a Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall in the German city of Hamburg in what German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has denounced as a brutal act of violence. Thankfully, the alleged perpetrator also died in the incident. And in other international violence, a week after the kidnapping of four Americans in Mexico, investigators are still working to piece together how and why this happened. And amazingly, the Gulf cartel, which is believed to be responsible for the kidnapping and the murders, issued an apology letter and handed over five of its members to local authorities. Okay, whatever that means. And finally, here's your annual reminder to change the clocks this weekend as we spring forward. Though some are trying to make this the last time we'll have to do that, Senator Ed Markey, who is dubbed the Sun King because He got legislation passed extending daylight saving time in 1985 and again in 2005. Now Markey is one of the sponsors of a bipartisan bill that would allow states to lock in permanent daylight saving time, enabling us to spring forward this Saturday night, Sunday morning, one last time and never have to fall back again. But in the meantime, there's this. There were those in Washington who thought they could control the space-time continuum. We'll just move time, they said. We'll save time. So they passed a law changing time forever. Forever. Or at least till fall. This is the new and Congress-approved weekend to change Saturday night before you head to bed or Sunday morning at 2. Time moves forward one hour. Spring forward. A friendly reminder from your favorite radio station. We like time. And National Geographic, too. I got to and that's just a bit of what's news for now. I'm Nicole Sandler. If you appreciate these reports and the Nicole Sandler Show, I hope you'll consider making a contribution. My work is listener-supported, and I can't do it without your help. Find out more at NicoleSandler.com, and please click on that Donate button.
Looking for a way to give back to your community? Here is something just for you. The Energy Well in Goshen is partnering with Concord Community Schools to offset student lunch debt. Supporters are invited to purchase a $10 ticket and go to Energy Well on Saturday, March 11th to spend your ticket on a smoothie, tea, bomb, or coffee. For every $10 spent, the Energy Well will donate $4 to cover the cost of student meal debt. And they are located at 121 West Washington Street. And the time for this event will be from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Take care. Calling all vendors. Here's something just for you. Elkhart Parks and Recreation is currently accepting artisan and food vendors for the Rhapsody Arts and Music Festival. For more information, you can give them a call at 574-295-7275 or you can hit them an email at events at coei.org. Take care and have a wonderful day. friends good to see you again and welcome back to the bill press pod and welcome especially to this week's reporters roundtable looking back at the big news of the week from our nation's capital it's been a busy week on several fronts joe biden released a bold new budget aimed at saving social security and medicare increasing funding for the military and paying down the national debt by raising taxes on the wealthiest of americans but like most presidential budgets It looks like it's dead on arrival in Congress. So what will Republicans propose instead? In other news, top Republicans and Democrats and Capitol Hill police all agree on one thing. The videos shown by Tucker Carlson do not reflect what really happened on January 6th. Three senators, Dianne Feinstein, John Fetterman, and Mitch McConnell, have all two of them still in the hospital. Dianne Feinstein just released from the hospital. Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis both head to Iowa. And a little breaking news, New York Manhattan prosecutors inform Donald Trump's attorneys that he could be indicted as early as next week for hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Whoa, here to make some sense of it all, Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Hi, Sabrina. Hi, good to be here. David, thank you. David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today. Hi, David. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And S.V. Day, White House correspondent for HuffPost. Hello, Sharish. Hey, Bill. So, um, you know, before we get into all the news of the week, this is the first time that we've been able to welcome Sabrina Siddiqui back to the Bill Press Pod uh, since she was one of only two reporters to accompany President Biden to Kiev on that secret mission to Kiev on February 20. Uh, Sabrina, first of all, great and gripping uh, pool reports uh, from that trip once you were able to, uh, to report on it. Uh, I, I want to ask a little bit about it and get uh, David and Sharice to comment also. But did you have any clue when they summoned you to the White House that you were heading to Ukraine? 
I was suspicious about uh-huh. the nature of the meeting and they had asked if I had a second passport. So I'm thinking, uh oh, where are we going? But I did not uh, anticipate that the meeting would be to say that I'd be one of just two journalists journalists to go to Ukraine with the president that we'd be leaving the next day. You know, I was scheduled to go to Poland with President Biden on that Monday, President's Day. And I just thought maybe what this meeting will be about is, okay, instead of going to Warsaw, um, maybe we'll arrive in Poland and make a quick trip to Ukraine, the entire press pool or something like that, um, as part of that trip. So I really did not, by any measure, anticipate what actually was about to unfold. What was the most memorable moment? The train ride? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I would say the train ride definitely was very surreal and bizarre just because for any sitting president to spend 20 hours on a train is extraordinary, 10 hours each way. I mean, they don't even let President Biden take Amtrak. We all know how badly he wanted to take Amtrak. (laughs) He wanted to come, come by Amtrak for his inauguration from Delaware, and they said no because it's too much of a security risk. Uh, he wants to do it for infrastructure, uh, you know, this infrastructure tour, and they haven't allowed him to. So it was just pretty extraordinary. But I think, um, I really think we, being at Marinsky Palace, the ceremonial um, home of President Zelensky and uh-huh. the president in general, um, you know, just a year prior to that, Russian propaganda had said, as the tanks were kind of encircling, um, that Zelensky had fled the capital city. And that was false. It was Russian propaganda. And Zelensky stood outside and recorded that famous uh, iconic video right outside the palace saying, I'm here and basically calling Ukrainians to arms and to fight and defend their country. So then one year later to be standing in that palace and there's President Zelensky walking the halls with President Biden and then his in this historic visit. I think that really that really hit as very, very symbolic and something uh-huh. that, of course, you know, it was an opportunity for me to really witness history firsthand. Did you ever feel that you were in physical danger? Uh, I think that the train ride was probably the most nerve wracking um, on the way in because it was entirely by night. We crossed the border within an hour from U- from Poland into Ukraine. And so actually the vast majority, like nine hours of that train ride were in Ukraine in the middle of the night. And, you know, there were moments when we would stop and at least one time it was to pick up more security. And I think mean, you just aren't entirely sure when you're, when, when you're stopped, what's going on. And I think there is this vulnerability when you're on that train, um, mm-hmm. just in case there's, you know, it, 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 you don't even, it wouldn't necessarily even be obviously intentional, but there's, you know, you don't really know the nature of what could happen. Um, that was the only time that you just felt more vulnerable. You know, when the air raid sirens are going off in Kiev, well, <laughs> yeah. that was a moment where you're, 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 you remember that you are in the capital city of a country that's at war. But there was a local reporter there who told me, you know, look, like, not, I don't know if it was, you know, it may not seem reassuring, but, you know, these actually go off all the time. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, that you know you, they are used to it over there. So mm. uh, you know, I think I think overall, you you do remember that you are traveling with the president of the United States. It's the safest possible way to travel. But of course, that doesn't um, take away from the fact that this was a very um, risky trip for any president to take. And so, of course, there are moments where you did feel vulnerable, and that's part of the history there too. So, David, we've seen other presidents visit war zones, but this is unlike any other presidential visit to a war zone, wasn't it? Yeah, very much so, it, um, because the, the, the Russians have actually bombed, you know, Kiev and 
it, it was very risky. I was quite shocked that he did it. Although I, I also th- feel like that these secret presidential trips are have become something of a tradition because all of our recent presidents have done them. I think starting with George W. Bush when he made his Thanksgiving Day trip to Iraq to meet with the troops, and that was held under very grave secrecy. And I guess that was dangerous. You know, Cheney was also in Iraq once in the military base. There was a, a bombing incident near there. Uh, but yeah, it was it was extraordinary, and uh, it was probably the most. Uh, to me, it was this, this Biden trip to Kiev was probably the most surprising one and the and the riskiest. Yeah, uh, because in those other countries you mentioned, Iraq or Afghanistan, the United States military right was there. Right. There were military right. zones occupied by the U.S. military, not in Ukraine. No, no. Yeah, and the, the idea of taking a train—it's not a nine-hour train ride in Ukraine while it's uh, you know the subject of an invasion. It's it's really quite extraordinary. I mean, just think of, you could have a, a miscalculation from from the Russian military, or any, anything could have happened to him. So, uh, like I say, I, I found it extraordinary. You know, uh, SV. The other thing I found extraordinary is that the White House was able to keep this a secret for so long. When did you and other members of the White House press corps? discover that the president wasn't even in the White House. He was on his way to Poland or <laughs> Ukraine. Right. Well, uh, it, when I got Sabrina's first pool report, to be honest, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, they, did, they did a very good job. It's, it, it's actually, if, if, you're, if you're joining a trip like this when, with one that's already pre-scheduled, that isn't that hard. It, it's harder to pull off one where you know, uh-huh. for example, when Trump was playing golf, which he pretty much did every day for when he was down in Mar-a-Lago, I remember that's where they left from on uh, on his trip. Uh, to, I think it was Iraq. Um, but in any event, when I saw Sabrina's pool report, that was just stunning to me because, you know, as, as David pointed out, I mean, nine hours on a train going 60 or 80 or 100 miles an hour or whatever uh, over the ground in a country that's being bombed everywhere <laughs> you know, by, by Russia – was a hell of a thing. I mean, they, they did tell us there was a uh, uh, a conference call with with the national security folks within an hour or two of them uh, releasing that embargo, and they said, "Yeah, we gave the Russians a heads up." So I'm sure that that probably played into you know a, better, a little bit better security because I, I don't think that the Russian military really wants a major war with NATO or the United States or anything like that. But still, I mean the. Uh, the risks involved, um, you know, and then the images were stunning. I mean, it just sent a huge message, which I thought was very powerful. All right. So let's get back to the news here and the breaking news uh, that we just heard last night. It's on the front page of The New York Times this morning is the Manhattan district attorney has invited uh, former President Donald Trump to testify in front of the grand jury next week. Uh, on charges that he paid hush money to uh, porn star Stormy Daniels. Sabrina, how serious is this? Well, it's very serious, and it obviously um, would be unprecedented. Uh, You know, obviously, we're talking about a former president who is also a current presidential candidate. And I think with the hush money payments, though, um, that has been one of the Trump investigations where prosecutors have felt there is the most evidence directly implicating former President Trump. I mean, Michael Cohen, his his former personal attorney, did testify under oath that he was directed to make those payments by Trump himself. And there's evidence that the Trump uh, organization falsified 
business records uh, related to those payments. So I think that the question, of course, is what happens next? Um, there's an offer to uh, Trump to testify next week before a grand jury, which has been hearing evidence in this case uh, or potential case. Um, that usually signals that an indictment is close. Uh, you know, by you, you, prosecutors don't typically notify a possible defendant um, without all, if they're not ultimately seeking charges. But, you know, I think there one, does he testify or not? It's obviously always been seen, been seen as a liability for Trump to testify because, to put it mildly, he has a problem with telling the truth. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think then the question would be, would he actually face charge? Would he actually face criminal charges? Um, because there's going to be a lot of questions around, I think, still whether he would ultimately be convicted. And, and this is a very yeah. complex case. And and there is that question mark around him being a former president, even though that doesn't mean he's above the law. Right. But, but, but some reticence around around this uncharted path. Uh, yeah. Attorneys, uh, legal experts say today is it's it's very it would be very unusual for the district attorney to invite someone to testify without actually filing charges uh, that it looks like it's already in the books. Were he indicted, David? Would it make any difference in his uh, 2024 plans? I, I can't help but think yes. Um, you think, think yes, right? Yeah, well, his base would rally around him, so that's one thing that would happen. But I, I, I think people in the middle would would be moderate, and I would think that Republicans who are kind of tired of Trump, it would give them one more excuse to uh, look at someone else. I'll, but I also say I think this is going to be a strange case because you know what, what Cohen talked about it was violations of federal campaign finance law. Right. This is a state grand jury. So I had a lawyer talk to me last night who thinks that they could, they could, he could actually be indicted on a misdemeanor in New York and that the felony count would be uh, an, attip, an attempt to say that, uh, that Trump did this in order to, uh, in, in order to violate federal law. Like this, he took this action in order to, in order to avoid federal law. And that's, that's going to be a tricky case to make in a state court. And I think it's going to confuse a lot of people. It's confusing me. And I think... Uh, you know, I, I tell people all the time, be careful what you wish for when you want to see Trump indicted, because these cases, <laughs> yeah. these, these cases could be very difficult and they could wind up backfiring on the prosecutors. Right. Uh, and SV, President Trump, to, not, uh, to no one's surprise, uh, put out a statement last night denying um, any payment. He also said, quote, I never had an affair with Stormy Daniels, nor would I have wanted to have an affair <laughs> with Stormy Daniels. <laughs> so clearly he's going to fight this, uh, you know, unlike Richard Nixon, maybe, who didn't fight the water uh, Watergate charges, he's going to fight this. Yeah, you know, whatever. I mean, in, in my mind, this one was, was always puzzling when Bragg, it, it seemed like Bragg was re- putting some uh, energy back into this when the when the Southern District of New York had had let it go at at Cohen and not tried to go after Trump of course Trump at that time was the sitting president so that made a difference um uh, I, again i mean Donald Trump used the threat of violence and violence itself eventually to try to hang on to power despite losing election that's the definition of a self coup right so what he did with the porn star how much he paid her and things i feel like even in 2016, voters kind of knew that, hey, this guy does these kind of things, um, and they voted for him anyway. Uh, he, he hadn't done a coup, 
right, in 2016, and he hadn't done a coup in 2020 heading into that election. And it seems that for the sake of democracy, those are the important charges, the ones in Georgia and the ones coming out possibly out of uh, DOJ in D.C. And I, and I feel almost like Alvin Bragg, after um, kind of putting the brakes on or maybe even ending that initial investigation into the tax records and so on, kind of said, hey, wait a minute, these other people are going to indict him? He's from New York, I should indict him, and then jumped into <laughs> it, and yeah. into this other thing that was still hanging out there. But as David said, this is a state charge on what's basically a federal campaign finance thing. I'm sure there are, I know there are laws against fraud and conspiracy to commit fraud in, in New York uh, State. It's been a long time since I covered the criminal courts in New York State, but there's always a way you can find a conspiracy, you know, if two or more people are uh, are talking about doing crimes, and I'm sure they could do that. It, it does seem kind of a distraction from the big deal, which is that he did a very bad thing leading into January 6th, and we ought not forget it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so just summing up, if he is indicted there, it certainly will not be the last time because we still have Georgia and the Department of Justice investigations underway, of course. And most of the uh, most of the news this week in Washington, D.C., was about uh, Tucker Carlson and his show where he sh he played some video, the first little selected videos that he picked out of the 41,000 hours of video he was given uh, of January 6th by Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Uh, clearly, Sabrina, um, the tapes that Tucker Carlson showed, which he described as showing nothing but um, basically a, a tourist visit um, by Trump supporters to the U.S. Capitol, or he called it peaceful chaos. Uh, we, we have to agree, they do not represent what happened on January 6th. Why show those videos, Sabrina? Well, this is just another effort by Tucker Carlson to misrepresent what actually happened on January 6th. And that was exactly why uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy faced so much criticism for handing the tapes over to Tucker Carlson in the first place, because he has used his primetime show to spread misinformation about the insurrection and to downplay um, what actually happened, which, you know, is was not you know, just an effort to overturn an election, but a violent riot where 138 police officers were injured. Um, Four, you know, five five people died, you know, either shortly before, during the event or following the event. You had four officers who responded to, to the attack who died by suicide within seven months. I, so, so we already, you know, most people, of course, are well aware of what actually transpired that day, but it still remains um, this polarizing issue for the Republican base where they feel that it was misrepresented and Tucker Carlson is playing right into those conspiracy theories um, as there's another election around the corner. Uh, it's interesting, though, that led to this split between McConnell uh, yeah. and McCarthy, McConnell criticizing Tucker Carlson and Fox News for its portrayal um, of January 6th. He didn't directly criticize McCarthy and the decision to hand over the tapes, but we all know how McConnell works. Yeah, the, the criticism of, <laughs> of Fox News and Tucker Carlson's representation of those tapes is an implicit criticism of McCarthy for handing the tapes over in the first place. Yeah. So, David, uh, to Sabrina's point, it, it does kind of put the Republicans in a pickle, doesn't it, that that they're kind of forced now to defend 
what happened on January 6th, and some of the Republicans are not ready to go there, as Sabrina pointed out. Uh, let's listen here back to back. First of all, Senator Tom Tillis from North Carolina, and then uh, Leader uh, Mitch McConnell. I think it's bullshit. I was here. I was down there. And I saw maybe a few tourists, a few people who got caught up in things. But when you see police barricades breached, when you see police officers assaulted, all of that, or you had to be in close proximity to it, I just don't think it's helpful. With regard to the uh, presentation on Fox News last night, I want to associate myself entirely with the opinion of the chief of the Capitol Police about what happened. So, David, where do Republicans go on this, right? Well, they need to go follow McConnell and Tillis. And uh, it's it, January 6th is a problem for the Republican Party. And the sooner they uh, own up to it and disassociate themselves from it, I think the better off they'll be. I, in terms of Car the, the Carlson contingent that wants to try to explain it away or suggest some kind of conspiracy, I, that's just that's just, just simply a political loser. I really don't understand why they're pursuing it the way they are. But uh, it's, they're not going to be. They're not going to change anybody's mind with this kind of thing. All they're going to do, they're going to reinforce their own bases uh, suspicions about what happened. But they're not. They're not going to change anybody else's mind. I, I think it's just a horrible mistake. In terms of politics, I think it's just a horrible mistake from uh, from Carlson and and Jim Jordan and all the rest. So a lot of the criticism, of course, is directed uh, correctly at Tucker Carlson, who uh, cherry picked uh, the videos that he wants to show and is, has been trying to downplay what happened on January 6th uh, from the very beginning. But SV, the person who gave him the tapes, was the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. Here is Congressman Eric Swalwell, who says, let's not forget who's ultimately responsible. I think it's important that we keep the focus on Kevin McCarthy here, right? When you go to the zoo and there's a sign that says, you know, don't feed the animals, uh, it's because the animals can't help themselves, right? Tucker Carlson, he can't help himself, uh, but us humans, uh, we can. And so Kevin McCarthy uh, is the one who has, you know, fed the trolls, so to speak. And so the responsibility, you know, should, should lie at his feet. Uh, does he have a point there, SV? Are the Republican leadership of, of, of the Congress responsible? Hell yeah. I mean, let's not forget here. Number one, Kevin McCarthy was mad that people broke into the Capitol and nearly got him killed. I mean, he was angry. He was trying to call Donald Trump that day. Well, for a little and while he was. Right? For, for that day and maybe for the next day, but within three weeks, he went down to Mar-a-Lago, had that picture taken with, uh, with the former president. Uh, and let's also not forget that Mitch McConnell had the ability to end Donald Trump's political career, his ability to run for anything in the United States ever, had he gone along with the conviction and brought uh, 11 others with him. Easily possible. He was, the, he was still the Republican. He still is a Republican leader. He could have made that happen. And we wouldn't be having this, as many discussions about Donald Trump as we are today. So this is squarely at the feet of McConnell, uh, McConnell, I think, um, and then after he failed to do what he needed to do, then McCarthy. So in, in terms of uh, Tucker Carlson, yeah, but you know what? Tucker Carlson doesn't hire himself. I mean, he's, he broadcasts on this network that let's, forget, let's not forget where that came from. There was a guy who worked in Richard Nixon's White House named uh, Roger Ailes who wanted to create a little news service back in 1973 that would put pro-Nixon video in the hands of local uh, stations all over the country to get their view out 
So to preempt basically the, the national network's news about how bad Watergate was, that never happened. But then he went on to create Fox News in the mid-90s for the purpose, specific purpose of exactly what Tucker Carlson is doing, which is like propagandizing things that, that are really on their face ridiculous. But you know, Fox News, that's, that's where the money is. And so you know, we talk about how the base feels this and they feel they need to well, why does the base feel that? Why, right? If, if everybody, including Fox, had just said, no, Donald Trump is straight up lying, he didn't win the election, he, there was no fraud, the base wouldn't feel that. The base would be mad that they lost, but th they would get over it. But this is ridiculous now, this chicken and egg question of, wow, you know, we have to say this because that's what, that's what our voters think. Well, you know, why do you suppose they think that? Had there been unanimity among Republicans and among conservative media that this was all nonsense, and was corrosive to democracy, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Got it. By the way, Eric Swalwell, we just uh, heard there, will be our next guest on the Bill Press Pod coming up next Tuesday, and we'll get more uh, of his take on uh, what uh, Kevin McCarthy is up to, and also about his exile from the uh, uh, House Intelligence Committee uh, be, uh, at the request, not the request, at the orders of uh, Kevin McCarthy. Well, good start, but a lot more to talk about here, a lot more happening this week. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll uh, be back with uh, today's panel, uh, Sabrina Siddiqui, David Jackson, and uh, S.V. Date, uh, all here on the Bill Press Pod and today's roundtable. And today's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod brought to you by the Smart Union, the good men and women of the Smart Union. That's the union that was formed when they put the sheet metal workers together with air, air rail, and transportation workers, forming the Smart Union under the leadership of President Joseph Sellers, uh, under the Infrastructure and the in, uh, in Inflation Reduction Act, members of the Smart Union rebuilding America's infrastructure. We salute the good members of the Smart Union, thank them for their great work rebuilding America, and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at smart-union, smart-union.org. When it comes to work, communication is key. Even if you don't have a writing job, Sounding unconfident, indecisive, or passive-aggressive can hold you back professionally and hurt your team's productivity. Grammarly Premium's advanced tone suggestions make sure you're always sending the right message. Sound clear and confident in your writing and automatically replace negative-leaning language with solution-focused alternatives. With Grammarly's help, you can build stronger relationships at work, be constructive in the face of challenges, and help your team get things done. Grammarly works where you do, so your team's projects get done before the deadline. And with features like comprehensive spelling, grammar, and clarity-focused sentence rewrites, Grammarly helps keep your writing efficient and mistake-free. The right tone can move any project forward. Get it just right with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com podcast to sign up for free. Then get 20% off when you upgrade to premium. That's 20% off at Grammarly.com podcast. And we're back with today's Reporters Roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod. Joining us, Esvidate, who is the White House correspondent for HuffPost, David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today, and Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter for the Wall Street Journal. President Biden going up to Philadelphia yesterday 
to unveil his uh, pretty bold and expansive $6.8 billion budget. Uh, so, David Jackson, like any presidential budget, this doesn't necessarily mean that what he proposes is what's going to happen, right? No, not even close in this case. It's all, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I hate to say it, but it's it's even more of a sideshow this year than, than it has been because of the standoff over the debt ceiling. I mean, that's the... That, that's the real fiscal issue that everyone's concerned about, to whether the Republicans will stick to their threat to not raise the debt ceiling and perhaps trigger a government default. Um, now, Biden's put on a plan to try to pressure them politically, but uh, we don't know if it'll work, and uh, it'll be it'll be weeks before we find out. But, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cliche, but it's true. Biden's budget is DOA, dead on arrival. So, Sabrina, is what the president really doing kind of laying out his campaign platform for 2024? Absolutely. And I think in, in general, we've seen that budgets put out by the White House are more of a blueprint for policy priorities um, than they really are um, any realistic te text that's going to become law. So with Biden, um, you, you're seeing you know fairly progressive budget proposal proposing uh, tax increases on the wealthy and corporations uh, to offset both domestic spending as well as to reduce uh, the deficit, the White House says. Um, and, you know, to, to David's point, this is not this is dead on arrival in a Republican led House. So really, it sets the contours of the debate that will take place, not just in these spending battles that he mentioned, like the debt ceiling this year, but in a 2024 campaign cycle, where I think you'll see Biden, if he runs, uh, which he's expected to do, and Democrats revive these themes that they have often gone back to um, in previous elections, that Republicans are pushing policies that are geared toward benefiting the rich and and um, a minor, you know, small percentage of the population. That Democrats are champions of middle and working class Americans. Um, as well as to kind of create uh, set up the debate over entitlement programs as well, which is a key part of this budget. Uh, the White House says these tax increases on the wealthy are also necessary to preserve the solvency of Medicare, Social Security, and we saw Biden challenge Republicans at the State of the Union to uh, you know to call basically ensuring that they would commit to not making any cuts to uh, entitlement programs. So those are some of the themes that I think um, will be integral, not just to the a fight that you'll see between the White House and uh, Republicans on Capitol Hill, but also in this widely anticipated Biden re-election campaign. And so the president realizes that uh, uh, the, with Republicans, particularly in control of the House, uh, it's going to have to uh, take a lot of uh, negotiation and maybe even some compromise. Yesterday in Philadelphia, he said, OK, I'm ready to sit down anytime. Here's the president. So I want to make it clear, I'm ready to meet with the speaker anytime, tomorrow, if he has his budget. Lay it down. Tell me what you want to do. I'll show you what I want to do. See what we can agree on. If we don't agree on, let's fight it out in the Congress. So, uh, SV, do we know what the Republicans want to do? Isn't that, isn't that the president's point, that he's come up with a plan and they don't have one? Right. And they won't have a real plan. And, and you know— uh, 
<laughs> I, this brings okay. back when I when I used to uh, I was a congressional editor at NPR, and every year we'd very dutifully do stories about there's the president's budget, and now the Congress will produce its budget. But remember, the budget is not really a budget; it's just a blueprint because it's really the appropriations bills that are the real budget. And you know, thank God I don't have to do that stuff anymore because <laughs> what's going to happen is in like mid to late September there's going to be a CR that'll get it by for another few weeks or months. And then there'll be a final CR for the year long. Come on. I mean, uh, this is, you really don't want to cut Social Security and Medicare, do you? And the Republicans say, no, of course we don't. So we'll put up a budget and they'll cut everything else by 90%. That's the only way you can make it actually balanced. What we're seeing here in is a uh, basically just an experimental test of modern monetary theory, I think, that, hey, you know what, if you're the reserve currency, uh, you prove that deficits don't matter and debt doesn't matter, which is what actually Dick Cheney said, what, in, in 2002 or, or one, that this is all nonsense and it doesn't matter and so don't worry about it. And, and you know what, most of America doesn't. So I guess we'll see if one day we actually do crash the world economy and we're like Greeks, I guess we're all wrong. But until then, we'll keep going and uh, the Federal Reserve will try to keep inflation from getting too high and interest rates from getting out of hand and try to balance that. And uh, and I look forward to the CR in September. <laughs> By the way, just a final point on this. When the Republicans saying that they want to balance the budget, but they don't want to cut Social Security, they don't want to cut Medicare, and they don't want to cut defense spending, um, the New York Times yesterday uh, had a chart of everything that would have to be cut if you leave those three parts of the federal government intact. Uh, it is. It'll blow your mind. I uh, encourage you to pull that out and uh, and check it out. Well, let's get let's get right down and dirty to politics today. Ron DeSantis has been out there with his new book, uh, traveling around the country, and today he goes to Iowa. Uh, is, is this what is this going to be? Is this the uh, Republican lineup for twenty twenty four, David? This head to head between Donald Trump and. Uh, Ron DeSantis. Well, yeah, those two and Nikki Haley, at least. Ah, and uh, true. I'm That's also uh, I'm, I'm just struck by the fact that our old friend Tim Scott is hiring people left and right for what looks like he's going to be a presidential campaign on his own. Whoa. Uh -huh. So this will be a first, guys. We'll have we'll have four candidates and we'll have two candidates from the same state, two states. That's never happened before. Got two guys from Florida and we have two people from South Carolina. So. It's kind of unique, but I think most of the attention will be on Trump versus DeSantis, and I think this will be the first round, these trips to Iowa. DeSantis is going uh, to, on the day that we've taped this podcast, and Trump is going on Monday. So it's it'll, it'll be interesting to see. A lot of people will be watching to see how each of them handles it. You don't think there'll be any more? Do you think this is the, the four no, of them? I, I, I think, I'm starting to think Scott will run. Um I, I'm, I'm less certain about Mike Pompeo, although I guess he'll run. He's done everything that you need to do. And Mike Pence is also very much a question mark to me because he's going to get jammed up on in this January 6th investigation. I'm pretty sure the courts are going to make him testify against Trump, and that's not going to go down well with uh, Trump or any of his supporters. So I'm, I'm starting. I'm, I kind of wonder if Pence is having second thoughts about running for president. But hmm. I'm not sure I can see anybody out there like Asa Hutchinson may also run, but uh, who cares? I think it's really going to boil down to uh, to Trump and DeSantis, and m maybe with Nikki Haley pulling five, six, seven percent and affecting what happens between those other two. Uh, uh, Sabrina, we've seen Ron DeSantis now. Certainly, we've seen him in Florida for the last few years, and we've seen him a little bit on the national platform. 
uh, how's he? How's he? Generally, how would you rate his? Is he ready for prime time? Does he look like a serious presidential candidate? I think so. And, you know, I think, well, this is going to be the challenge for Democrats. It's going to be very similar to um, Glenn Youngkin's campaign. Mm. Oh, yeah. Good point. In the Virginia gubernatorial race, um, where Ron DeSantis has effectively been willing to ride whichever wave will, will, get him, you know, elected at the next level. And so if it meant embracing the Tea Party in one moment, he's there. If it's, you know, just going full Trump as he did in the primaries when he ran for governor, infamous campaign ad, teaching his daughter, his uh, toddler to build a wall with blocks, he'll do it. Then, you know, when he's in, you know, this position where a statewide position where you have to sort of be a little bit more amenable to the, broad, the broader public on willing to kind of cast himself as a little bit more of an establishment figure, whatever that means in the current day Republican party, but make no mistake. He's also been right at the forefront of these culture wars, um, you know, p- advancing anti LGBTQ legislation, of course was, you know, really one of the faces of, you know, um, you know, against COVID restrictions at the height of the pandemic. So, you know, I think he it really is wherever the political winds take him within the Republican Party and where he feels the the base is at in that moment. But someone that I think a lot of establishment people will still rally behind because they probably still see him as their best shot and best alternative to Trump, um, who I think, you know, at this point, many Republican um, leaders or elected officials uh, would like to be done with if 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 they can. Um, of course, again, that what where where Republican voters are is what will ultimately dictate this Trump DeSantis matchup. But I think the thing about DeSantis is he is very much a chameleon, and so it will be very hard, I think, for Democrats to um, typecast him as you know another Trump or or an extremist because he's he is someone who could probably sell himself to many different types of voters. And then, uh, as uh, both of you mentioned, there is Nikki Haley, the only one who's officially out there running uh, for the nomination. Uh, she hasn't yet made it running against Donald Trump. So, Esve, here's Nikki Haley this week uh, uh, trying to make her play in prime time. On Biden and Harris's watch, this woke self-loathing has swept our country. It's in the classroom, the boardroom, and the back rooms of government. We're told our country is flawed, rotten, and full of hate. Joe and Kamala even say that America's racist. Wokeness is a virus more dangerous than any pandemic hands down. There it is, SV. She's running against wokeness. Uh, (laughs) Is she running for president or vice president? Oh, he's running for president. I think, uh, you know, uh, there are maybe there are some people who have who know that they have absolutely zero chance of, of getting the nomination and, and, and are in there for something else. I, I don't think she's one of them. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, she came from a she was governor for a couple of terms. She was U.N. ambassador, which I, I of course, is not the same as being secretary of state, but it's 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 not nothing. And so she's got a pretty decent resume for this um, uh, for this run. Now, uh, as to DeSantis, I mean, I, w- I-, I spent most of my career in Florida. I-, I, in fact, I was just down there for his state of the state speech, and it was um, it was interesting. He did not use the word woke once. 
Not Whoa. once. And I was shocked. I had actually made a yeah. tally on my notebook to keep track of how many instances <laughs> there were so that I could divide it by the number of minutes of the speech. And the, and, and the percentage was zero, zero instances of woke. He didn't really get into details about anything. And he didn't also did not mention abortion. Now, there's a six-week abortion ban coming up in the state legislature, which will pass. And then because of the primary, he will sign. And then he's in serious trouble in a general election because voters have made it very clear that they're not interested in restrictions that go that far. Um, as to he and Trump, now, this is interesting because, yeah, voters are still uh, uh, enamored with Trump and the Republican side, but they're also sick of losing. They really are. I mean, the last three elections have, have been bad for Republicans, and, and the reason for that is one guy who lives down in Palm Beach and insults people. And they're done with it. And they would, if he's the best chance of winning, it'd be nice if people said, you know, he did a coup, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't reward him, and he should be in prison and stuff. But they're not. They're done with him <laughs> because he's a loser. He's a three-time loser, and they don't want it to be a four-time loser. So right now, it's all this DeSantis versus Trump, but things will change dramatically once he's indicted. You know, because as a former Trump administration official told me that uh, most voters, even most Trump voters, are going to say, well, we can't nominate a guy who's indicted. We're not in New Jersey. And so that'll, I think that'll just put a different look on it. And if Trump is no longer the 900-pound gorilla, uh, that opens up the mm -hmm. race to all kinds of people. You know, we, we yeah. mentioned Scott. I mean, I think uh, Glenn Youngkin can't run for re-election in Virginia. I think Chris Sununu is an interesting voice in uh, mm -hmm. in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And hey, the one guy that I keep waiting for to jump in, because I think he already took on Trump and beat him, is Brian Kemp in Georgia. Yeah. Right? I mean, he won a, a, a pretty substantial win in what was a hard-fought state. Uh, he could be the sleeper if, if people talk him into running. All right. And we're just getting started. Uh, just getting started in the 2024 race, but just ending up uh, today's podcast. And a big thank you to uh, our uh, members of the roundtable today, Sabrina Siddiqui from The Wall Street Journal, David Jackson, USA Today, and SV.Day from HuffPost. Uh, and my good friends, before you head off into the weekend, uh, what was the one story that caught your attention this week? above all others and made you sort of stop and uh, either weep or laugh about it. Uh, David, start us off. Your favorite story of the week. <laughs> Not too much to laugh about these days. I, no. you know, I guess I'll, I'll pick a series of stories, and it's the uh, It's one of the upcoming great events of the of any year, and the uh -oh. National College Basketball Tournament, which oh, is going to be next week. March Madness is upon yes. us once again, and I, I really like it because, first of all, I you know I started as a sports writer and I love the game, but also it's one of the few institutions left in public life in which. We can all agree that it's something worth worth watching. And Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, they all come together at March Madness to either fill out brackets or comment on social media on the teams. And it also kind of unifies the country. I mean, we'll have, uh, you know, we'll have teams from Arizona, California, uh, South Carolina, from all across the country. There'll be at least one team represented. And uh, it's a lot of fun. And it'll be a nice respite from all this bad political news. Remember Barack Obama filling out his bracket, exactly. right? <laughs> when we were covering the White House. That exactly. was, uh, he was always picking Kansas because he was from there. So he, <laughs> I always accuse him of having a little bit of a bias there. But that's uh, all part of it, too. Uh, and Sharish, you at HuffPost, what caught your attention particularly? What caught my attention was Sabrina's story about being a, 
a, a new mom, a nursing mom, having oh, to go a great you know, on a secret flight in the middle of the night and then on a long train ride into a war zone. And the challenges that presented, you know, I can't even imagine being pool on that trip. I mean, I'm stressed out enough on normal travel pool days <laughs> when I'm going to like Philadelphia for a speech or something, you know, because, uh, you know, it's all on you. I, I, I can't even I can't even imagine the pressure of being on this trip and being me and just the AP photographer. And that's it. And then on top of that, having to have to make express and store milk. I mean, that's. My hat's off to you, Sabrina. Well done. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. that and I'm a, so glad that that essay resonated with a lot of people. So that was a beautiful, much beautiful story. I have to ask, can I ask a question, Sabrina? Of course. So you, you were pumping your breast milk and you said you were able to um, find people who would put it in the refrigerator for you, right? Yes. Does that, did you bring that home to the United States? Or what? I did. But oh my God. The one thing that I <laughs> mentioned in this was, um, you know, I was very lucky because I had these resources due to the method of travel here. And most women don't. Yes. And that was important for me to acknowledge, too, that, you know, we are just a striking lack of support and infrastructure for women when they return to work and especially for breastfeeding and pumping moms. Now, I was at, in a situation where I could tell the ask the flight attendants on Air Force One if they could keep the milk and then the person, who, the train attendant, if she could keep the milk. And eventually I just need to get to Warsaw. Once you're in Warsaw, then most hotels, wherever you are, are willing to freeze your milk for you or put it in their fridge while you're there. And then it was just a question of getting it back to the U.S. But because I was flying, you know, in a, essentially a private capacity, then uh, you know, I had resources that many women don't because TSA is obligated to allow you to carry your breast milk through security, but then keeping it stored on a commercial flight is a lot more challenging and a lot of women just aren't able to and have to throw it out, which is just devastating. So I, I'm very fortunate and I, I really hope if any, one of the other conversations that may result from this is how to ensure that more women have the resources they need to succeed when they go back to work. Well, it was a great story. Thank you for telling that story. Uh, and now, uh, Sabrina, uh, do you have a favorite dog story? <laughs> no, this so week. I have to always bring something about dogs. That's just going to be my thing, right? So I, I actually found this. It's not even a story as much as a conversation starter in the Washington Post just the other day. And I think you guys should ask this question at your next social gatherings because I think it's going to be one of those uh -oh. um debates about is it appropriate to recline the seat on the plane remember that debate yeah um, so the, you know there's a question in the washington post what are the responsibilities of dog owners when they're hosting and you know the question is should, are, should you are you first obligated to your guests and if they're not comfortable like with dogs should you just assume they're not and should you have the dog in its in its crate or in another room or outside or mm you know, are you, it's your house, they've come over and your dog is part of the family. And so just let the dog be um, natural in its habitat. And this is one of those very polarizing subjects that I'm fascinated by. And I think especially now that we have a baby, I, I personally love dogs. But of course, now that we have a baby, sometimes if someone's dog just rushes over and starts licking her face, it's not ideal. <laughs> if, you know, if no one asks, you know, and I, I love dogs. Everyone knows that. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's one of those that's actually, I find very interesting um, looking at it through a different lens. And um, I, I, I would love it. I, I think this is one of those, cause I saw there's many different um, ways in which, uh, you know, people have responded to this uh, question. It's, it's triggered a lot of debate over at the Washington post. 
And I bet yeah. if you guys bring this up at one of your next uh, social gatherings with dog owners and non-dog owners, it would probably it would probably be one of those that touches a nerve or brings out a lot of interesting opinions. All right. We will accept your challenge, uh, yeah. Sabrina. I think a lot of it has to do on how well behaved the dog is, but that's just my a quick a quick reaction on my part. And I have to tell you, uh, my favorite moment of the week uh, among many was last Monday in the uh, White House briefing we have not mentioned yet among presidential candidates, Marianne Williamson, uh, whom, whom I don't think should be mentioned or even taken seriously. Uh, but uh, her name was raised at the White House briefing, and uh, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, I thought, responded uh, in the best tone of all, where she just kind of made fun of the whole thing. Here is the uh, press secretary. Just not tracking that. I mean, if I had a, a uh, what is it called, a little... A little globe here, crystal wall, that I can tell you. But I, I imagine eight ball, whatever. If I could feel her aura, I, I just, I just don't have anything. I just don't have anything to share on that. <laughs> Marianne Williamson was not happy with that response, but uh, uh, I, I, I identify with Corinne Jean Pierre. I cannot feel Marianne Williamson's aura either. I don't think most Americans can. And that's it for today's roundtable. Great big thank you to S.V. Date, White House correspondent for Health Post, to David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today, and Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you, guys. And thank you all for joining us today. And again, we invite you back for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod next Tuesday, where we'll be talking with Congressman Eric Swalwell from uh, California about uh, what's happening, particularly on the Republican side of the Congress this year, but also how Hakeem Jeffries is doing as the new Democratic leader. All of that coming up next Tuesday. Have a great weekend. We'll see you Tuesday on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod with Eric Swalwell. COVID-19 moves fast, and now you can too by asking your healthcare provider if an oral treatment is right for you. 
Oral treatments can be taken at home and must be taken within five days from when symptoms first appear. If you have symptoms of COVID-19, even if they're mild, don't wait. Get tested quickly. If you test positive and are at high risk for severe disease, act fast. Ask if an oral treatment is right for you. COVID-19 moves fast, and now you can too. Looking for another way to support local businesses? Or if you're interested in becoming a vendor, here is something just for you. You can attend the 6th Annual Elkhart Farmer's Market in downtown Elkhart. This market will take place at Cardeskly Park in downtown Elkhart this summer beginning on May 6th and running every Saturday through October 14th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. And they will be accepting farmers and growers, artisans, and home-based vendors. If you're interested in becoming a vendor, head over to the Elkhart Parks and Recreation to send fill out the form. Or you can contact them directly at 574-295-7275 or you can email sherry.crask at coei.org. That is sherry.krask at coei.org. Take care and have a wonderful day. Hey guys, I'm Kaylee Shore. On my podcast, Too Much to Say, I share my thoughts on everything from music to martinis, social media to social anxiety, regrets to risky texts, and so much more. I have been known to read my literal diary entries on my show, and sometimes I do interviews with my crazy group of friends. So if you guys want to tune in, you can hear new episodes of Too Much to Say every Wednesday on the Nashville Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to them. Hey there, I'm Brock O'Hearn, an actor here in Hollywood. And I'm Will Meldman, an independent film producer. And we're your hosts of the Studio 22 Podcast. A podcast that dives into our networks in business, entertainment, and sports. We are sitting with Dude Perfect, NFL wide receiver, Brandon Cooks. A 12-time Emmy Award winner, Jim Gray. Hello, friends. How y'all doing? I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate the time. What's up, y'all? This is Chase Rice, and this is Studio 22. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders has rolled back big portions of her state's child labor protections. We have a great show today. NPR's David Falkenflick stops by to talk to us about the latest leaks in the Fox News Dominion lawsuit. Then we'll talk to former Senator Doug Jones about how Dems can regain ground in the South. But first, we have the host of the Lawrence O'Donnell show, MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Lawrence O'Donnell. Oh, great to be back with my new microphone that I'm so proud of that I bought just (laughs) for this conversation. Yes, we love that. Very excited. I want to talk to you first about the Dominion filing because this is not your first rodeo and you have been in this business, the business of politics and then the business of media. I think a lot of us suspected that this was happening, but were you just shocked that there were like actual text messages documenting these things? No, I I would have been shocked if there was a shred of evidence of a shred of decency there including in the, you know, Brett Bayer department, which has always been corrupt. But 
you know, the news media has never wanted to believe that there's this imposter. It's not a cancer uh, on the business. It's just an imposter. You know, it's like the wrestling channel said, called itself <laughs> wrestling news and the news media just, oh, well, it's news. It's been a fraud from the first day. I remember before they opened their doors, I remember walking down Sixth Avenue and hearing from someone that, oh, you know, Rupert Murdoch's going to start a Republican TV channel. I, because I'm brilliant about these things said <laughs> well no one's gonna watch that and you know because republican tv channel to me sounded like more boring than c-span at the time because the republican party was bob dole and you know that stuff but you know here we are it's always been what it is and it's it, it and the it just horrifies me that people keep using the word that Rupert Murdoch ordered them to use when he filled out the corporate papers titling the business Fox News. Um, that is a classic case of what the senator I worked for, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, would call semantic infiltration. And that is infiltrating your language to force you to say what I want you to say. And so there are these attempts to do that in politics in various ways with phrases like pro-life. I'm going to call myself pro-life, therefore you have to. And the news business obeys those commands. But I mean, I have not put the word news after the word Fox in many, many, many years because it's, <laughs> it's, it's just a lie. And the whole thing is a fraud and everybody working there. There's not a single person working there who's in the news business. There never has been. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's right. And I just want to get back to what you said about Brett Baer, because they had this distinction that there was a news side and an entertainment side. But what's very clear from this is that's not true. Yeah, no, Brett Baer was horrified that Fox called Arizona first, and he was horrified that they lost viewers because of it. That's never happened in any of the real news divisions around there. I can confess to you, this may come as a shock if I pull back the curtain a little bit, <laughs> but I personally, I won't speak for others at MSNBC, but I personally was deeply disappointed when we realized Donald Trump was going to win the Electoral College. And I realized it about a half an hour before other people, because I was sitting there with uh, Steve Schmidt and James Carville. We had our own little studio and we would do our own little cut ins. And for 20 minutes at a time, we were not on TV. And those two guys were doing way more than the decision desk does. They were texting and calling people they know in such and such a county in North Carolina. And I would hear James Carville talking to someone in you know, North Carolina and say, well, if we lose that, then we're going to lose Wisconsin. And he's and all he's getting is a report from one particular district in North Carolina that he knows mirrors Wisconsin and all that. So so I kind of knew the tragedy unfolding about a half an hour before everybody else. And there wasn't a moment where it crossed my mind. Well, we can't as a network go out there and say Donald Trump won. We can't do that. You know, it's like, no, sorry. Never crossed my mind. I think that's a really good point is that they're, they tried to shape the news to fit the narrative. But I'm curious, it seems like the larger problem that Fox ends up having and you see in these filings is that they have given their listeners, their viewers so much of what they want that they have sort of been unable to shape reality to what these people needed to hear. And so there is this sort of almost, I mean, I feel like it's like something from a sci-fi novel where they realize that they can no longer shape reality to meet the demand. They are 
continuing to deliver exactly what they believe that audience wants. Here's the funny thing about it. You know, when they talk about, oh, we watched our ratings collapse that week. Yeah, it was a rough week for Fox, but here's the way it goes. And everybody knows this and everyone knew this ahead of time. And it would have been true in 2004, you know, with George W. Bush. And it was true in 2008, you know, when Obama won. So if the Republican wins the presidency, the MSNBC ratings are going to drop because there's going to be a depression in a majority of that audience. Okay. Then they don't want to, they don't want to consume this stuff anymore. And if the Democrats win the presidency, there was always a drop, always, every time, a drop in the Fox ratings that week. Okay. Right. And it didn't mean Fox wasn't going to make billions of dollars. It meant there was this kind of moment, you know, the Super Bowl is over. And the fans are not watching football the next week. That's just the way it works. And so their panic about losing audience is just so despicable on every level, including the money level, because they were all, all going to remain very, very rich. Fox was going was to continue to make billions. And they are panicking over this relatively slight and totally predictable and temporary drop in ratings. It's so interesting, though, because they sort of can't ride with it. But I also do think it ended up being what I think is pretty interesting is that they ended up this choice they made, which they clearly made a choice. They knew what they were doing. It's clear they knew that the 2020 election was free and fair. They did it because they just didn't have a hold on the market. They did it because they thought it was their job. It's a Republican Party operation. And the doctrine of the Republican Party in the 21st century, and this was not always the case, but by the 21st century, what it became, Republicanism simply became, we hate liberals. Right. It's nothing else. There's no policy. There's no balance the budget. There's no eliminate the deficit. There's, there's no policy at all, except tax cuts and we hate liberals. And we get our <laughs> tax cuts by convincing people who are not rich, who also hate liberals, to vote for us. And that's the entire scheme. And that's Murdoch's entire scheme. He has no other objective except, you know, the the demonization of liberals. And so that's the game. So they're going to do that and they're going to do whatever is necessary to do that. And there are absolutely no limits. And I promise you, there have never been limits. There's never been a day at Fox, never a day where they had any kind of moral or ethical limit on what they might do or say. Yeah. And all you're seeing, if you see a difference between Sean Hannity 1997 and Sean Hannity 2017, and there is, it is simply what is acceptable. What are the bounds of acceptability? And so those things change in every sphere of life, you know, over time, over a 20 year period, you know, what's acceptable to say contracts and expands in different kinds of ways. And so they're just playing within the zone that is now acceptable. And what's acceptable now in Republicanism is literally anything it takes, anything, right. anything right. to beat and destroy liberals. So one of the things that I've been continually having a argument with even very smart Republicans, but tend to be Republicans, <clears throat> is this idea that DeSantis is somehow less dangerous than Trump. Can you just debunk this? I mean, this just blows my mind, this idea that somehow someone who is much better at doing this is less dangerous than Trump. Yeah, I don't think there's any real evidence for that case that 
DeSantis is less dangerous than Trump. I always, when I was watching Trump, I was always thanking the luck of the draw every day, just how lucky we are that he's an imbecile. We are so lucky that he is as deeply, profoundly, and permanently stupid as he is. (laughs) Because if he was just a couple of notches smarter, you know, the things that he was trying to do could be done with better premeditation. Like, even, for example, I'm going to need an attorney general when re-election comes who's going to do anything for me in the Justice Department. He had, because he's stupid, reason to believe that Barr was that guy. And Barr was disgraceful, and Barr disgraced himself beyond what anyone who knew him could have imagined. But still, there were going to be limits, you know, for somebody who grew up in the law like Bill Barr, and Trump found those limits in November, you know, of of 2020. If he had planned a year ahead of time, who is the idiot, the hack, the moron (laughs) I want as attorney general for that moment? He could have basically told Bill Barr to quit, right? Because you don't have to get this guy confirmed. You don't have to get him confirmed. You, as we saw with the crazy, you know, lawyer uh, from the Justice Department, who he temporarily, for a few hours, made acting attorney general. He could have gotten a guy like that in in a smoother way. And DeSantis would get that guy in in a smoother way. He would have premeditated it. Trump is this imbecile who is late with his homework every single time, right? Yeah. And so, so no, exactly. and, and we're lucky, you know, we're very lucky because of that. DeSantis is the most premeditated of his kind I've ever seen. Like he's, he's way beyond, way beyond Trump in all of that. Yeah, that's what I think too. I mean, the book banning, the education stuff. I mean- Let me just add one difference to DeSantis that could be a civilizing factor. Because Donald Trump did something that has never been done before in the history of the presidency. Every single person, except Franklin Roosevelt in our recent time, who won the presidency, immediately tried to figure out, how do I get the voters who didn't vote for me? And the reason I say except Franklin Roosevelt is because his first election was a landslide and his second election was even bigger. Right. And so but everybody else is you know, kind of squeaking in there. You know, JFK won the presidency by less than 1% of the vote. Eight years later, Richard Nixon wins the presidency by less than 1% of the vote. Both of them wanted to sound appealing to people who didn't vote for them. Everybody has done that. Ronald Reagan did that. Ronald Reagan won 49 states in the Electoral College in his re-election because after he got elected and after he built a career as a right winger, the most extreme right winger in the party, every day of his presidency, he was trying to appeal to what came to be called the Reagan Democrat. Trump gets elected. He does it. And all I did, I'm telling you, when he was elected, all I did was sit there and listen for what did he say today? to the people who didn't vote for him. And there literally was not a sentence, not one day of the entire time. And that is why he didn't get reelected. If you wanted to get it to its most simplest point, that's why he didn't get reelected. The guy who came in second in the vote, but got the electoral college anyway, that guy didn't try to convert any voters. Guess what's going to happen to him (laughs) next time? He's going to come in second again. And so DeSantis, I suspect, I, I, I suspect may, if he, if he were to win the white house, he might spend four years trying to appeal to people who didn't vote for him and go from 
48% of the vote up to 51% of the vote. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I also think... And by the way, and the way a Republican appeals to people who didn't vote for him is obviously not with Republican ideas. It, it is to soften the edges of Republican notions. You know, it's the compassionate conservative stuff that the Bushes would talk about. Right. Well, and I also think it's sort of faking it, right? It depends. I mean, you know, George H.W. Bush wasn't faking it in the sense that he did reach legislative compromises with uh, Democrats in Congress and, and that some of which were significant, you know, and he was condemned for it by Republicans, by Pat Buchanan, you know, by the lunatics. George W. Bush was very much concerned with what you thought of him very much. And he was very much concerned about that, even if you didn't vote for him. And that is a civilizing influence on politicians. Trump has none of it. And in Florida, DeSantis has none of it. We'll see what would happen if he goes national. I want to just drill down on this for a minute. Don't you get the sense that DeSantis, he lost a debate to Charlie Chris. I mean, don't you think there's a lot riding on someone who no one has ever really seen? No, I think I actually think he's had a great deal of exposure for a presidential candidate, you know, way more than Jimmy Carter had as a governor. I mean, when Jimmy Carter announced that he was running for president, everybody outside of Georgia said who? No one knew, right. no one right. knew that name. Same thing with Bill Clinton. People didn't know who that guy was. DeSantis's visibility as a governor is as high as I've ever seen for a governor who was not already a presidential candidate. You know, Michael Dukakis, nobody knew how to say that word outside of Massachusetts, you know, when he announced as, as a governor. And, and so he's gotten a tremendous amount of visibility. And, you know, we're at the stage where debates have declined dramatically in, in how much they matter. If they mattered, Donald Trump, you know, would have gotten 20% of the vote. That's an old notion that we all used to have about how is this you know, candidate going to stand up in the debates, you know, in presidential debates. And it's like, well, it doesn't matter very much. The biggest clown in the history of presidential debating, you know, won the Republican nomination in 2016 right. and then, you know, went on from there. Yeah, it seemed to make no difference. Do you think that Biden, this is an anxiety I have, that taking New Hampshire out of the lineup is going to hurt him? in the general election? Not in the least. That, that's just a, you know, it's a fetishistic thing that not a single voter in a single state cares about. You have to remember that most voters in America do not get a chance ever to participate in a presidential primary that has any impact whatsoever on the presidential election. That's the truth for most American voters. And their spirit as voters is not affected by it. I mean, I want someone to find me the voter in New Hampshire, you know, in November who says, yeah, I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna <laughs> vote for Biden, but then, you know, when they just, I mean, no, no, I've been to New Hampshire. I've been to New Hampshire every year of the New Hampshire primary for the last, I don't know, way too long a time. <laughs> They're not exactly thrilled to see you, you know, the people of New Hampshire, you know, the political fans of New Hampshire love it. They line up around the blocks to get into high school gymnasiums to see Barack Obama. And it's and it is quite exciting if, if you care about that. But you, you got to understand you're looking at less than one percent of the population of New Hampshire who ever bother to leave their sofas to go see one of these presidential candidates. 
Yeah, it's a good point. Okay, here's my last prediction question. I'm sorry to do this to you. Can we just deal with all of your anxieties? Because <laughs> I'm here, as we know, to help you through your anxieties. So that's, we, de we dealt with your New Hampshire anxieties. <laughs> well, I have another one. So we're in good shape. Okay. And again, but I don't want to be wrong, that the Dominion court case will go. Do you think that they'll settle or you think they're going to? I mean, because if it goes, I mean, this is going to be a pretty big block. No, so the time to settle has passed. The, the reason you settle these lawsuits is that you don't want the damage to come out publicly. And so that's why Fox settled every Bill O'Reilly lawsuit. You know, they settle all these things. You settle a lawsuit before Rupert Murdoch has to sit down and testify under oath. They didn't do it. Now, there's what people are neglecting to remember about a settlement is that both sides have to agree to it. So what we do not yet know, and we might someday know, is that Fox made an offer to Dominion and Dominion said no. And if you're Dominion, I personally believe my legal approach to the case, assuming they have $20 million to spend on legal fees, which I guess they do, my approach would be do not settle under any circumstances because winning the case in court is not important uh, to Dominion's viability as a business. Well, they've already won what they needed to do to be viable as a business. They have proven in all this under oath testimony by Rupert and everybody else exactly the scope and shape of the lies told about Dominion by Fox. So Dominion as a business can go forward in the world, you know, marketing its services anywhere. And no one will ever have to say to them, but wait, you know, Fox said you guys are criminals. Like, that's never right. going to happen, ever. As of today, that's all over. So the important thing is Dominion has won. It has won its reputation, and it has destroyed Fox's reputation. And the only way they could do that is get to this point where, where we're reading Rupert Murdoch's under oath testimony on TV. And if they had settled, you know, six months ago for $100 million or $300 million or $500 million, we would know none of this. And so Dominion has had zero incentive to settle. That's the part people don't understand when they talk about settlement. I'm sure Fox would have loved to settle this <laughs> a year ago for some number that they thought was reasonable or even for a number they thought was unreasonable. But the, the jury verdict is tricky and it may well be that, you know, Dominion doesn't, quote, win the case in court in the end. And I personally, if I'm on the Dominion end of it, I don't care. I don't <laughs> right. care. I already won. And if the jury and if the judge, you know, make rulings that say, you know, this stuff lives within First Amendment protections, or if, you know, Fox establish, gets a win like that from the Supreme Court that they sort of own in their way, I don't care. It doesn't change anything about what we know the facts to be. So my strong suspicion about the inside of this is if there was an, a settlement attempt by Fox, it was refused by Dominion. Yeah, so interesting. Thank you so much, Lawrence. I hope you'll come back. A pleasure. Thank you. What would you do if a secret cabal of the most powerful folks in the United States told you, hey, let's start a coup? Back in the 1930s, a Marine named Smedley Butler was all that stood between the U.S. and fascism. I'm Ben Bullitt. And I'm Alex French. 
In our newest show, we take a darkly comedic and occasionally ridiculous deep dive into a story that has been buried for nearly a century. We've tracked down exclusive historical records. We've interviewed the world's foremost experts. We're also bringing you cinematic, historical recreations of moments left out of your history books. I'm Smedley Butler, and I got a lot to say. For one, my personal history is raw, inspiring, and mind-blowing. And for another, do we get the mattresses after we do the ads, or do we just have to do the ads? From iHeart Podcast and School of Humans, this is Let's Start a Coup. Listen to Let's Start a Coup on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Welcome to the Studio 22 Podcast. I'm Bronco Hearn, an actor here in Hollywood. And I'm Will Meldman, an independent film producer. We are Studio 22. Thanks for having us. Yeah, super excited. A podcast that features insights from our network of guests in business, entertainment, and sports. Our goal is to maximize the amount of quality advice our audience can take away from each episode. Find that balance between life and ball or you're going to burn yourself up. <laughs> when speaking with legendary broadcaster Jim Nance, we inquired about how he prepares for each different sporting event from March Madness to the Masters to the Super Bowl. No one's going to tell you what to say. They're doing their own job. So there's immense preparation. Or even our guest, Jim Gray, who told us about his life interviewing the GOATs, the greatest of all time, like Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson, Kobe Bryant, and many more. There was Ali with the entourage, and he looked at me after the first or second questions. You're doing the interview? We are the Studio 22 Podcast, available to listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dates don't usually end with a satisfaction survey, and yet we rate everything in our lives, from Uber drivers to local coffee shops. So why don't we do the same thing when dating? We're here to conduct the ultimate romance review, featuring daters hungry for love who have agreed to call up old flames to gather honest feedback. Welcome to Exit Interview. He upgraded himself to business class while I was in economy. <laughs> Wait, wow. What? There's feedback that will make you cringe. She could be a little bit hard-headed, like not reading the writing on the wall. And feedback that will make you swoon. But she said that she had feelings for you. I had no idea. Really? <laughs> and maybe you'll learn a thing or two yourself about how you can be a better dater, lover, or partner. Obviously, like, knew I was going to learn something. I didn't expect this. Welcome to Exit Interview. Listen to Exit Interview on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. David Folkenflick is a media correspondent at NPR. Welcome to Fast Politics, David. Thanks, Molly. Glad to join you. Very thrilled to have you. I just want to talk to you about this continual drip, drip, drip of the Fox News Dominion filing you have been a media reporter for a while. You've written about the Murdochs. You've written books about the Murdochs. I mean, <laughs> what is your hot take here? I wouldn't call it a drip drip so much as a, a sort of a series of avalanches, you know, in yeah. recent days. I think what is notable for somebody who's covered it closely, as I have for coming up on 23 years, you know, the media and Fox has been a big and growing part of that. You know, it's really all part of covering media and politics as well, right? is how stark it is, how blunt it is, how blatant it is. And the it is the degree to which decisions are made by business imperatives, and those business imperatives are ineluctably entangled in politics. And it's not just, hey, we've got to pander to a right-wing or a left-wing audience. It's, hey, we've got to tamper with what we present to our folks as reality. 
It's not just that we're Mother Jones and a left of center outfit that does some reporting or the the Washington Free Beacon or whatever. It's literally withholding the facts that you know to be true because you know that this is a money gusher and you don't want to turn off the spigot. In fact, the spigot has been drying up a bit right after election night 2020 and the original sin of Fox calling Arizona for Joe Biden on that night before any other broadcast network or cable network had done so. Trump voters who had been tuned into Fox to hope that they could celebrate were like not only celebrating, they're like, oh, screw you. You guys are the guys bringing us this news. You guys are the ones doing this. And for days, other news outlets did not. And you see intimations from people inside Fox saying, well, they're just doing that to hose us by leaving us hanging out there. But they were using different numbers because Fox, joined by the AP, had bailed after the 2016 presidential call was so problematic. That is the polling data and everything else really just didn't capture what was happening in some of these key swing states. And so Fox kept telling reporters like me, oh, we've come up with better math. We've come up with a better way to do this. And they felt that they had had some success in the off elections of 2018. And then they went all in. Now, that turned out to be a very close call. And in retrospect, one wouldn't have begrudged them not making the call, given how close it turned out to be. It was razor thin. You know, there's an interesting statistical argument to make about whether or not they were taking a little bit of a leap of faith with their new numbers. But they made the call and they trusted those their their projections. And then you see Fox people, a civil war erupted within Fox as a result of that. So was I surprised? No, so much of this is based on Uh, pairing what you see happen on the air with what people from inside Fox are telling you. As a result, I'm not really surprised. It's just so blatant. There's no code words. There's no sleight of hand happening. And, you know, it really only occurred to me in recent days how much of this probably this incredibly rich documentary record that Dominion is drawing on. We can talk about the merits of the case in a sec, but how much of it's influenced by the fact that it's occurring in the age of COVID. And so people aren't having these conversations in person all that much. They're emailing and texting each other more than they probably would have. Not that they, you know, it's not like Tucker and Sean and Laura are always going out to drinks at night. You know, they can text (laughs) if they want to text. It's not that I think they particularly like each other, but they have common interests and common grievances. And man, after that election, they are on it. They think that Fox hates them. They think that the news side hates them. They hate the, the reporters who work for them for pointing out false claims that are made on their shows on Fox and more publicly. Uh, it is absolutely civil war happening internally at that network. And it's it's a sight to behold and to lift up under the rock and see how things behave. And Molly, let's acknowledge that if NPR or the New York Times or CBS or CNN or anybody had all of its, somebody described this as being like an x-ray, you know, this is more like a 3D MRI of all the organs and all the bones and all the muscles, right? Like this is everything pretty much. It's really ugly. Yeah, I think it's kind of shocking. Were you surprised that Tucker hated Trump so much or that he'd sent that text message or no? I mean, if he was thinking hard, given how often Dominion was sending notes saying this stuff isn't true, he might have thought, well, there might be a lawsuit in my future and let's let's keep this you know, let me not express this, but Tucker, it is very hard not to conclude that Tucker is a pretty cynical person. Does Tucker yeah. actually believe there was no violence on, on January 6th, 2021 at the U.S. Capitol? Does Tucker actually think these were just uh, pleasant 
peaceful protesters ambling perhaps a little too far past a velvet rope that they shouldn't have. The fact that you can find people not committing violence at given moments of course of the day, does that prove that sworn testimony, videotape, convictions, confessions, all these things that have happened from people uh, who participated in those bloody events, that we will just have that erased from our minds? No, he's providing an hour where he can talk to the audience and tell them what they want to hear. And there's a lot of misdirection. You know, he loathes Trump. So what he does is he goes after Trump's enemies rather than having to go after and defend Trump. You know, Fox during the second Bush term in office, the second George W. Bush term, obviously, was kind of depressing to watch. It was not fun. They had to defend things like the war in Iraq, which got increasingly ugly. They had to defend Katrina. They had to defend the collapse of the global. Like there was a lot to defend, right? right? <laughs> right a lot right. more fun going after Obama. And so the, the thing about Trump was they kind of would have been happy to have Hillary to go after for another four years, right? That would have been fun for them. They could have replayed all the hits of the Clinton years. And instead, they've got to defend Trump. But it turns out Trump is artificially stirring the passions of their audiences to keep watching because nobody knows what he's going to do next. And he keeps calling into Fox and he keeps juicing them and they just go along for the ride and hold on as best they can. So that's what, you know, Tucker's doing. Tucker's counter-programming. It's a TV thing. And, and they're letting him do it because they have no control. Right. He's too valuable. And also at this point, the, the hosts are running the asylum, right? Uh, I mean, if you're going to go to that analogy, I think, you know, the common wisdom is that in some ways the inmates are running the asylum, that that the, the viewers are, that for a long time Trump kind of was, you know, with his kitchen cabinet of Sean Hannity and Janine Pirro and Lou Dobbs, Bartiromo and others, right? <laughs> Where they're li he's literally pulling people into the administration off Fox from watching them do things. Pete Hedgeseth was up for, if I'm not mistaken, the Veterans uh, Administration <laughs> secretary at one point on the basis of what he says on Fox and Friends. That's the guy who doesn't wash his hands, right? That is true. He said that. I mean, credit yeah. to his co-host who was like, yeah, that's probably something I don't want to know. But there it was. I mean, it's such an incredible situation to be in. Do you think that, I mean, who do you, you know, Lou Dobbs is now out, right? And it seemed like he was kind of thrown over, under the bus there by Rupert, who said he never watches him. That was kind of great when he said he doesn't watch Fox <laughs> Business Network, although he called it a channel. You know, it was like, you know, I can't imagine working for that network and feeling very great about that. But you know, they earn, a lot of them earn decent money to do so. So what are you going to do? Right. Dobbs was thrown over when not Dominion Voting Systems, but Smartmatic, an election software company that essentially had almost no involvement in the 2020 elections, filed suit on its own, where Dobbs was out the next day. And Fox is like, well, no, this is all previously uh, scheduled reshuffling and reconstruction. And Dobbs basically was out in his ear. And at the time, it seemed implausible to untrue. And now it just is very clear what occurred. And my experience in covering the Murdoch and various scandals over the years, of which there have been a decent number, they'll throw people over the back of the sled to the wolves at as low a level as possible, but as high a level as needed. And then if that doesn't go, they'll go up the ladder a little bit. And right now, I don't think they're going to do anything because Fox has maintained, and Murdoch said in his uh, speaking under oath to lawyers, that he saw no need to apologize. They were reporting, and this is an integral part of Fox's legal defense, they were reporting inherently newsworthy claims. Hey, the presidential elections were rigged by an inherently newsworthy person. Hey, the sitting president of the United States and people speaking on his behalf. And that if you were to cut that off, then the Washington Post and MSNBC and everybody else will pay a real price journalistically as well. What, of course, 
Dominion says and a lot of media lawyers I talk to say is there isn't that analogy because what Fox did is so egregious and because we have not only the clarity, which is legally needed, that key folks knew that what they were putting on the air was untrue and that the people presenting it weren't credible either, but also that they had a motive, which is we have to win back these Trump voters as our viewers. And you don't actually need a motive proven in that way to win defamation in in a lot of states, but my goodness, you certainly seem to have one declared. And, you know, there's back and forth. We can talk about the legal merits, but as a supposed news operation, this is a business enterprise talking about the brand promise and the politics are a key element of it. And the journalism, although Rupert of all people occasionally waves the flag in these private correspondences, is not just like a distant third, but like 13th out of three. So interesting. Do you think that they will go to trial. And also, I have a question for you. This is because it's in Delaware, they can claim more damages, right? In the civil. My understanding in this case, from following it so far, is that they are applying New York state law in terms of defamation, but they're applying Delaware state law in terms of the administration of the case and the flow of the case. And that gets into some pretty picayune areas, and I am not a member of the bar in either state or any state, (laughs) and not playing one on TV or on this podcast. But I would say that, you know, the judge hasn't laughed these damages out of court. Fox has made a fairly muscular, or at least rhetorically muscular, argument that the the, the extent of these damages, Dominion Voting Systems is asking for $1.6 billion, but that's sort of a notional figure, that they're clearly inflated in BS. And Dominion is arguing, no, that we have reason to say this. And there's, you know, the question of reputational harm. There's the question of actual harm. And there's the question of punitive damages. So they feel that it all does that. So that's one we'll have to see. But, you know, that's it's interesting that Fox is stressing all this stuff. It makes sense in the sense that they're saying you have to prove you were hurt. And one way to prove reputational harm is financial harm, right? But that's really an appellate question. That's the kind of thing you're like, well, we lost. Now we've got to fight over how much we actually have to pay. And then you appeal it. This is not uncommon. I don't want to be unfair to Fox. They already have a very strong appellate team in place. That is the people who will argue the appeals, which says to you that they don't have ironclad confidence they're going to win this thing. But when you have as much money as the Murdochs do and as Fox Corp does, you know, you hire those people as a routine anyway. I mean, does Fox eventually say like, this is too expensive or, I mean, Dominion clearly is going for blood, right? There's clearly some ideological, like you can't ruin us, ruin us kind of thing. I mean, right? So Dominion wants to come out of this with a ton of money and preferably with some sort of prominent retraction and apology. The Murdoch's want to come out of this without having to tell their audiences that they were not only that they were misled, but that they were intentionally misled and deceived and lied to. The Murdochs have shown in previous scandals I've covered, there was the tabloid scandals in Britain. And I sort of stopped counting after they exceeded, I think it was $200 million in various things attached to that. It wasn't that they paid that out as illegal fee for the people they wronged exactly. But those were like a series of costs associated, if I'm remembering it correctly, to that. And it's been a while. They definitely paid more than 200 million in the Fox sexual harassment scandals that largely but not entirely focused on Roger Ailes, you know, who they tossed out really the week, basically, that Donald Trump got the Republican national nomination for president in 2016. I was in Cleveland at the RNC intending to write a bunch of stories. And it was all Roger all the time because these these allegations came out. It was just it was the biggest story on the floor, to be honest, beyond Trump. And they paid, you know, 
many hundreds of millions of dollars, you could argue close to a billion dollars for these various settlements and payoffs that involved this completely unsexy part of what's called News Corp, which is uh, Murdoch's publishing side and used to be all unified under the same umbrella. I think it was called something like News America, uh, which was basically a supermarket marketing thing that back in the day made a ton of money where they placed ads and coupons in supermarkets. When you go through the aisles, you could pull off 50 cents here and they have decals on the floor or whatever. And it turned out they did all kinds of things to basically run their competitors into the ground that probably violated the law. And so they paid hundreds of millions of dollars there. So, you know, if Murdoch could cut a check tomorrow and pay $200 million and just make this go away, I imagine that would be a tough but fine deal for them to strike. And I don't think that's what Dominion wants. I think they want to play to a higher pain threshold, both in terms of money and to make him confront what he did. And the less that the Murdochs are willing to acknowledge, the higher dollar figure I would imagine a settlement would take. But so far, you know, what I'm told is that there are no signs of any settlement talks happening and that. To be honest, I think that's almost entirely on the Dominion side that the Fox Court would at least entertain the conversations. It's so interesting. Even though they acknowledge doing nothing wrong so far. <laughs> Amazing. Too soon to count Newsmax and OAN out. Define uh, counting them out. They've been dropped by cable companies. Those two are sort of, you know, they had this moment and it's and it's sort of been now kind of they've kind of fallen out of favor. I mean, do you think there's a world in which Fox loses those viewers and they go to Newsmax and OAN? I mean, if you look at this completely stripped of morality, I think the biggest damage Fox could do to its business model is to reveal to its viewers the contempt in which they hold them. That is, they don't respect them. Truth, you can't handle the truth. Right. That's their biggest damage. Outside of the question of their ratings, I think they're going to, you know, it's almost like a seesaw where there's an inverse relationship between their reputation outside and the reputation with their audience where they're going to just take a huge hit with, you know, establishment, Washington, mainstream institutions, the news part of Fox, which is really shriveled and withered and lost some of its biggest figures, Shep Smith, Carl Cameron, their longtime guy walked away saying it was too much for him. Chris Wallace saying that the fever fantasies of January 6th by Tucker Carlson was a step too far for him. You know, these are a thing you're seeing. There are very few figures other than Brett Baer, you know, Eric Sean, you know, is a reporter and sometime anchor, but, you know, he he has a quiet profile there, right? They're just, there's a diminishment. They got rid of uh, Chris Steyerwald and Bill Salmon, who were defenders of the decision desk and other things. They just, they've really widowed down the muscle that they have on that side of things. And you can take issue with those guys too, but at least they were there, right? So it seems to me that Newsmax and OAN are unlikely to be major challengers, to Fox unless it somehow breaks that brand promise that Raj Shaw and CEO, Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott were so focused on in the documents that have been released and start backing away from this kind of culture grievance coverage and attending to the needs and the and the sensibilities and the the fears of uh, the Trump voter, even if they're not pro-Trump, which they aren't at the moment. They're really very Ron DeSantis-ish at the moment. Right. So that's what I think the real issue is. I also think that their audience, if it fractures, will probably go to things that may not be as conventional TV. You know, right. you can you can go to whatever the newest Breitbart is. You can go to the Daily Wire. You can go to other people who are going to 
mainline the stuff into your veins if you want without the need to have any journalistic sensibilities at all. Oh, thank you so much, David. That was really depressing. I do my best. Every little bit I can do to bring you down, Molly, is, uh, you know, look, there are people inside Fox who think, hey, uh, this is going to be a wake-up call, and after we emerge from it, you know, Fox is going to have to revitalize its news coverage and what have you. But at the moment, they're not saying anything like that because they're not able, probably legally or willing from a moral standpoint, to say what we did was wrong. And Dominion, in its latest filings, has made a point of that, to say Fox has basically conceded the point because they haven't done anything to defend an affirmative argument for why any of this stuff had any validity or credibility to it. And that's just a very different way of looking at what Fox did. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for coming. Thanks, Molly. <laughs> Doug Jones is the former junior senator from the state of Alabama. Welcome to Fast Politics, Senator Doug Jones. Thank you, Molly. It's great to be with you. I really appreciate the opportunity here. First, I think we should talk about this weekend in Selma. Bloody Sunday weekend in, in Selma is always a very, very special commemoration. And that's the best way to put this. It's a commemoration. Uh, they have been doing this, the, the folks, the organizers down there, have done a wonderful job of having a jubilee every year on the first weekend in March that culminates in, in a recreation of the, of the walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. This year, President Biden came down, gave a fabulous speech at the foot of the bridge. There was a great crowd, enthusiastic crowd. Molly, I think it's so important that we continue those type of recognitions and commemorations because, you know, we have come so far and turn so many pages on the Jim Crow South. But we seem to be flipping some of those pages back right now with voter suppression and so many other laws that discriminate and make it more difficult for minority communities to really get the full benefit of, of this country. It's so important to remember where we've been so that we try to make sure we don't go there in the future. It's a fabulous weekend. It's quite a big deal for Biden to come down for that. Can you talk to us a little bit about his thinking? It is a big deal. It's a big deal for any president. The presidents usually come when it is a signature commemoration, like the 50th or the 45th. Uh, the president Obama was there. President Clinton came. Uh, when President Obama came, even former President George W. Bush came. But for this president to be there at the 58th, which is not a signature event, but just a commemoration, I think says a lot about him and where his heart is and where he wants to be and wants the country to be. He sees and understands, probably as good as any president we've had, including President Obama, of where things are in this country right now. And that is why he has been appointing so many people of color, particularly women, black women, to the federal bench. Why his administration is perhaps the most diverse of any administration in history. He sees that the country is becoming more diverse every day, and he is the president of that country, and he wants to celebrate that. But again, he also sees that there are proud boys out there, and there are oath keepers out there, and there are those who uh, commit mass murders in Buffalo and other places around this country because of hate speech and race. He's got the bully pulpit. He's the leader of this country, and he wants people to understand the significance of what happened, but also the significance of where we are today as a country and where we need to be and going forward as a country. So it, I think his thinking is that this is, Selma is the time and the place to be right now, probably before he kicks off his, his presidential campaign to 
showcase the country's and his commitment to diversity, to equity, to inclusion. You have sort of been very central to try to move the South out of, you know, the sort of terrifying Jim Crow and apartheid. I mean, it's just exactly called it like it is. That's what it was. That's what it was. And that's what it is. And how do you feel right now with America being where it is and also just the sort of larger landscape? Well, look, you know, you have to qualify everything by saying America is not the Jim Crow days that I grew up in in the 50s and 60s. Alabama is not the Jim Crow time. Alabama, the South, the country is not uh, the kind of country where lynchings take place as often as they did a century ago. And we have come such a, a long way. However, we still have miles to go before we sleep. And I think people should recognize that and see that because if you look demographically at the country and where things are, are moving, we are becoming a more diverse country. And we've been becoming a more diverse country, Molly, ever since we were founded. I mean, this country was always meant to be a multicultural, multiracial society, even though some people did not want to accept that. And so we're becoming more diverse from the moment that we declared our independence from Great Britain. As we move forward, though, what we're seeing so many people fighting these culture wars and playing on the fears of people across this country. And you see groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, and you see politicians like Donald Trump and others kind of whipping that into a frenzy. And it's not just Trump, by the way. This whole anti-woke movement that you see going on in the MAGA faction of the Republican Party really is troubling. It's really frightening. Do you think it's really anti-woke or do you think it's really a kind of bait and switch way of getting back into this, this sort of racism of the past? I'm not sure that it's that, except for this. If getting into the racism of the past helps the political future of people who want to run for president, want to run for the Senate, want to run for governors, if that's what it takes, then there are people that will damn sure do that. And that's what's frightening to me. They will take the country backwards for their own political purposes. I don't think that so many of those folks deep down are the racist, not the kind of racist like I grew up with, but they have an, their own form if they're doing things that perpetuate those racist kind of issues for their own political power. And I've said this for a long time. These are not people who are going to lynch folks, but there were people that, that dang sure would put folks in the back of the bus if they thought that that would help their political career. And that's what we're seeing. That is what we're seeing across the board. Something happened in Alabama just recently. And this is, I think, typical of where we are in this. I say typical. I don't know if it's typical or not. But we recently had a group of high school students in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, that wanted to have a Black History Month program. And the school administrators said, fine, you can do that. We're happy for you to do that, as long as you don't discuss anything that happened before 1970. I wish I was kidding about that, but I'm, I'm not. So these students walked out. Nothing happened before 1970, so that makes sense. No, of course not. Everything started when I was 16 years old in 1970. Those students walked out. They relented a little bit, and but, but that's the kind of thing that we're having to face across the country. So I don't think we're in a good place right now, and I think we've got to work through that, and we've got to have some very serious conversations and dialogues about it, dialogues and not monologues. Yes, for sure. Quite interesting. So let me ask you now, 
Where do you feel, and you have this long time experience with civil rights and a long time experience with the Biden administration, what do you think the Biden administration should be doing next for voting rights, for civil rights, for the South in general? You know, I think the administration has done what they could do in terms of using the presidency and the bully pulpit to try to get certain changes to the voting rights bill across the finish line. We couldn't do that for a number of reasons. In the last Congress, I think it will be more difficult in this Congress. And by the way, I think the Justice Department and the Civil Rights Division and the folks like that are also taking very careful looks at where you know where we are with voting rights, and they're taking a very serious look at how to protect the rights of people with the laws that we have on the books. I'm hoping that going into 2024, they're also going to do an analysis of the Voting Rights Act and determine that they can also perhaps use the Voting Rights Act to potentially investigate and potentially prosecute people who refuse to certify duly uh, constituted elections. I think the Voting Rights Act, and we've done some research at my law firm on this, I think the Voting Rights Act can be used to make sure that free and fair votes are counted and that they're certified by the appropriate officials. I talked to some folks this weekend down in Selma about that. I I think given the dynamics that we have in the Congress right now, I think that the protection of the vote needs to be very strategic. It needs to be more of a rifle shot than a shotgun and not a wish list. It needs to be the things that have, I believe, and I've believed this for some time, the possibility of passing. Right now, for so long, people, Republicans especially, balked at doing anything to establish standards for mail-in voting, for early voting, that every state should be required to have some form of minimum standards and require the states to do something on early votes and mail-in votes. Well, all of a sudden, after the last election, you know, many Republicans were saying, you know, maybe this early voting is not so bad because they were losing elections, because their folks weren't utilizing what they had in these states. Well, let's take this opportunity to say, great, why don't you join us and let's establish these minimum standards. Instead of having a hodgepodge of laws across 50 states, let's require all states to do some form of early voting, some form of mail-in voting, and have uniform standards that can be enforced across the states. And as part of that, Molly, and a lot of people, I know a lot of your listeners, probably don't want to hear this, but as part of that, you're going to probably have to also do some form of national voter ID. But the key to that, in my opinion, has always been being able to require folks to be able to get those voters and and the the states to provide those voters, not just have one van like they've got in Alabama that you can call for and go to, but really make an effort to get voter IDs out there that the state will do and give a broad range of state IDs that can be done. I think if we can be really strategic, that's what I would like to see the administration and my friends in the Senate and the House do, and let's get something passed to protect the right to vote. Because at the end of the day, we still, there are still states and we still have trouble getting people to the vote. Wow. You really think a voter ID is the way to go on that? I think it has to be in order to get something passed. I think you've got to do something to get this passed. To give the Republicans. Exactly. Everything about our democracy right now is a divided government. A form of national uh, voter ID was part of the Freedom to Vote Act. 
And I know a lot of the civil rights group and a lot of my friends didn't particularly like that. They kind of bit their tongue. But it was there. It was it was necessary to even have that bill to, to have a chance. I think we're going to have to look at that. And quite frankly, if you couple that with resources and requirements that would require the states to be able to get those voter IDs out there to people, the biggest issue, in my view, Molly, what I've seen, the biggest issue is not the ID itself, it's getting the ID. And that's that's a real problem. In Alabama, you know, when we passed that voter ID to photo ID thing, first thing that a former governor did was shut down some of the DMVs in our Black Belt area. And they had, Justice Department had to come in and, and sue them to get those things opened back up. It's access to the ID. And if we can get resources and requirements that would require the state to get those voter IDs out there, then the ID itself would be so much less of a problem. Right. I guess. I mean, I don't know. I feel like voter ID is just a way to make it harder to vote. People have said that, and I agree with that. But if you've got access to an ID, it is not hard to pull it out at a poll. The problem that we've got with voter ID is not the ID itself, in my view, except for access to it. Access to photo IDs is a problem, and I agree with that. That's why you've got to give folks some resources. In Alabama, for instance, now, in order to vote absentee, you have to make a photocopy of your photo ID to mail in with your absentee ballot application. Now, not everybody in Alabama's got it. A- 